Hey gang, welcome back. It's Ron Remkes here with CFA Institute, and uh, we're joined uh, by Pippa Momgren for another Take 15 interview. Uh, Pippa is the founder of DRPM Group. Uh, previously, uh, Dr. Malmgren served as financial market advisor to U.S. President and as member of the National Economic Council. And she also recently published a book, Signals, the, the Breakdown of the Social Contract and the Rise of Geopolitics. Pippa, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So um, for our audience, for investors, can you start out by just giving us a, a brief overview of a framework that we could use in thinking about applying geopolitics to the realm of investing? So I think this question of uh, what's the right way to think about geopolitics is so interesting. Most people have strong opinions about geopolitics, but they don't have a framework about how to think about it. And so it's one thing to have opinions. It's another thing to have a systematic way of incorporating it into your portfolio and your thought process. So uh, the CFA commissioned me to write this piece called Geopolitics for Investors. And that's what the monograph aims at, is to understand what are the different methods. So, you know, one of the spectrum, you can say, you can take the sort of Nassim Taleb black swan approach. You can say it's all a black swan. It's completely random. I can't be held accountable for any of this. And you just go up and down with the market. I think that's a mistake, though, because there are lots of things where you can kind of see it coming a bit in advance. And there are money-making opportunities as much as money-losing opportunities. So then another way is to say it's going to be a systematic part of my process, but do you in-source and you create you know, a kind of a team or a network or... Uh, different sources you rely on, or do you outsource it? You hire outsiders and they do some of this for you. Um, or you take a kind of special situations mentality where you say things we used to assume and hold to be true, like borders being in a particular place, are now fluid. And actually we should be investing in special situations that are not in keeping with what we've always known, that something new starts to happen. So there are lots of choices about how to do it. Right. Um, in, in your recent monograph, you've talked about how uh, since World War II, the, the institutions and uh, structure uh, is increasingly being challenged by countries like Russia and China. And uh, my question is, how far are we from where we were in that post-World War II era with those structures to some new world order? Where are we on that transition point? Yeah, well, we are in a transition. And it's happening partly because... Russia, China, and other emerging markets are saying this whole post-World War II economic construct that was a, a U.S. dollar underpinned world economy with U.S.-led institutions like the World Bank and the IMF, kind of a U.S. philosophy that this served everybody's interests, is actually not working for them now. And so since the financial crisis, which is the moment that revealed that everybody's interests were actually different, it's interesting because the U.S. and the industrialized world have spent most of the time trying to repair those institutions and that post-war international financial architecture, whereas Russia and China are spending all their time trying to create a new version of it. So it shows in many different forms. One is the encouragement for the use of renminbi and rubles instead of dollars. 
part of it is the new BRIC Bank and the new Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. And, and they're important because what it means is that the money that emerging markets used to have from their savings no longer will go into the U.S. Treasury market or the British gilt market or Western debt markets, which in the past gave us low interest rates and let us have current account deficits, right, because they funded the gap between our spending and our earning. Now it's going to go directly into building infrastructure that serves the interests of those nations, which may or may not serve the interests of the U.S. and Europe, for example. So we are at a very important moment in history. Maybe that explains why the U.S. got upset when Britain said, we'll join the new Asian Infrastructure Bank. And it goes to show you there's a lot of stress about what is the system supposed to look like. So by implication, then, it'll be a lot harder for the U.S. going forward to maintain low interest rates if they don't have a natural buyer from Asia. Well, they're going to have to think about who can replace that demand. And I would argue that what's going to happen is more what you might call moral suasion or immoral suasion or financial repression, which is that regulators in the U.S. and in the industrialized world will say to the pension funds, you should really only do safe things with your assets. And we think you should hold more safe assets. That is defined asterisks, only the sovereign debt of this nation. And so suddenly you create a demand, not because they like the asset, but because the regulator tells them they have to own it. So the loss gets moved from the Chinese to the domestic saver. So as investors, how do how do we deal with geopolitical risk? Do we deal with it at the individual issuer level or is it more at the macroeconomic level? Well, it hits at so many different places. Like, for example, as investors, we're all glued to one extent or another to benchmarks. And all the benchmarks and the indices, like the MSCI, for example, they're all based on countries. But in fact, countries aren't really a sensible way to invest, especially in a world where the borders are more and more fluid. Um, Like, for example, the border between the United States and Mexico, which, you know, everybody thinks, well, that's a very solid border. No, it's so fluid that the U.S. is having to send in the National Guard, and even they can't really maintain the border very well. So nobody knows quite where is the border now, given all the immigration pressure. And the two economies... Texas and Mexico or the southern part of the United States and Mexico are so integrated. What are you investing in? Are you really investing in the U.S. or investing in Mexico? Or it's this thing that's kind of a new geopolitical construct that uh, is easily investable, but it doesn't show up on a benchmark in the traditional way. You know, is that an emerging market play or is that an industrialized country play? It's something new and different. All right. So. So let's explore a practical example. So uh, back in the early 1990s, when Saddam Hussein's uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait, uh, you saw oil prices spike and uh, markets uh, tank. And fast forward to more recent times when ISIS invaded northern Iraq in oil-producing regions, um, it was essentially a non-event. How, as an investor, can you discern the the nuance of the geopolitical risks that are actually embedded in any given set of events? So there's going to be an argument because there is no one correct answer. But the point is, clearly geopolitical risk had something to do with the outcomes. So we have to think about it. So, uh, for example, one of the questions I get asked all the time is, was the drop in the oil price, which was so dramatic, Was it supply and demand or was it geopolitics? And I think the answer is it was both. 
the supply and demand was driving down the oil price and the Saudis decided to kick it down the stairway a little further. Why did they want to do that? But very much because the relationship with the United States deteriorated very dramatically because the U.S. supported the rebels in the Arab Spring, which is not in the interests of the ruling households of the Middle East, especially Saudi, because the U.S. wants to do a deal with Iran, which is Saudi's mortal opponent, and uh, several other issues. One of them mainly is the U.S. announcing, we're going to be free of those people in the Middle East. We're going to be energy independent. And the people in the Middle East are like, wait a minute, that's us and our cash flow. Right. So all this leads to the Saudis saying, you know, let's drive the oil price down because what does it do? Number one, it kills the Iranians because their budget's so dependent on oil exports. that They've been decimated by the lower oil price, which from a Saudi geopolitical perspective, means they're less able to be a threat to Saudi. Right. Same with Russia, absolutely killed by the lower oil price. And frankly, they really knocked the U.S. fracking story uh, and, and extended the time because so many of the frackers go bust once the oil price goes below a certain level. So in that sense, we really do need to consider that actions taken by a Saudi are driven by geopolitics. And if you keep the oil price lower than you would have otherwise, then that's a market outcome that we're going to be playing. Right. So um, maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, financial warfare between countries. Mm. How prominent is it for countries to use fiscal or monetary policy or oil policy as a, as a means of engaging with another country for a geopolitical aim? Yeah. So I love this question. It's so fascinating. It all depends on the angle you come at it from. So, for example, uh, one of the things I've just written about in, in a book I've got called Signals is the perception by China, Russia, and emerging markets that the U.S. is effectively conducting a kind of warfare against them through monetary policy. So the view is that the U.S. is going to default on its debt by seeking higher inflation, and, uh, you know, the one view is this is exactly how the U.S. has always dealt with their debt problems, right? That's how America paid for the American Revolution, the Civil War, the war in Vietnam and the Great Society period. And so you're just going to do that again. And there's this great line from James Bond, you know, where Goldfinger says, you know, once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, three times is enemy action. And there's a perception that it's not just that these emerging markets are going to lose money on the debt instruments they've bought. The bigger issue is what happens if there's success in unleashing inflation. That is a big problem for emerging markets. That gives them social unrest. And sure enough, we have seen it. We've seen higher oil prices, not now, but at the beginning of QE. We've definitely seen higher food prices at the beginning of QE and a sense that volatility being driven by these Western decisions. So their reaction is fine. Now we reach for assets. Now we take the South China Sea if you're China. Now we take Ukraine if you're Russia. And they see it as an act of warfare. So that's one angle. But if you flip it around, uh, another example is the sanctions on Russia. So the Russian uh, president recently said, Medvedev, if you kick us out of SWIFT, then we will re- we will retaliate with all means available. And it's so interesting because when you talk to the defense community, they know that all means available means nuclear weapons. So nuclear weapons are now back on the table, and we have to think about that. That means the peace dividend just ended. So that's important for financial markets. But on the other hand, the defense community guys are like, and what's SWIFT? Like they don't actually know that that's the banking system network that we're 
kicking Russia out of. And meanwhile, the Russian view is, we'll just create our own. And the world starts to say, well, actually, you know, maybe that's a worthwhile entity to join. We'd like to be part of the Russian bank clearing system. And so the, now the U.S. sees that as a warfare on them because they're creating an alternative. Just as the Chinese Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, you know, instead of circulating that money into U.S. treasuries, now it goes into emerging market infrastructure, and that means the U.S. has more vulnerability in funding the current account deficit. So everybody sees these technical economic decisions as having a geopolitical pain angle to them. Right. Uh, well, it's certainly fascinating. Um Shifting gears a little bit, um, recent financial research by uh, people like Roger Ibbotson and others has suggested that liquidity is overpriced and therefore illiquidity is underpriced by investors. However, that seems to stand in contrast to some of your commentary on geopolitics. So as investors, should we all carry much higher cash balances waiting for that next geopolitical event so that we can you know, have some dry powder to uh, capitalize on opportunities? Yeah, you know, it's so, again, fascinating that here we have record liquidity in the markets, and yet you constantly hear um, investors saying they can't borrow, they can't, um, like, who can use the liquidity is the question. Yeah. It may be record liquidity, but it's only accessible to a few very large banks and even they can't really use it, you know, because the regulators are saying, if you use it to make loans to small businesses, that's fine. But if you use it to, you know, engage in hugely leveraged prop trading, then we don't want you to do that. And this is a very interesting philosophical issue because government is basically giving you a blank check, but then beating you up if you use the money right. in any way that they don't like. And so it's about government directing outcomes. So yeah, we have mispriced liquidity. And either way, whether we've got a real recovery and that means there are going to be investment opportunities that are genuine, you want some dry powder for that, or we're not having a real recovery, we're going to have some kind of day of reckoning, in which case you want some dry powder for that. So either way, we probably need a more margin of dry powder somewhere. Okay, well, that's great. Uh, thank you, Pippa, for joining us today. And thank you for joining us uh, online. And be sure to follow all of our content at cfainstitute.org or on Enterprising Investor. Thank you. Copyright 2015 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.